0: Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. If you'd like to send us your questions, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you want to know proper spelling, you can join us on a number of online venues. Our website is Calvary Christian If you click on the Watch Live tab, you'll be sent to our page where we are streaming. Both on the weekdays from Monday through Friday from 5 to 6 p.m., but also counting down to when that next fits in your respective time zone. If you'd like to join us on social media, our Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. The Calvary is spelled C A L V A R Y, and our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope. If you want to subscribe or give us a like, you'll be notified when we are going live in your respective time zone. However, as we are making the habit of reminding you, they don't don't like us there. So if you aren't notified of when we are going live, we've been taken down or technical mishaps have taken place for whatever reason, you can still join us on our church website where previous broadcasts will not only be available, but also present broadcast will be streaming from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S. every single weekday. We also make the habit of beginning every Tuesday, or Wednesday for those of you listening on Reach Radio, to begin the broadcast with an apologetic topic, but while we're discussing that, note your questions are still welcome. If they are sincere Bible questions, that's the criteria of what we'll be addressing on the broadcast. If it is sincere, that means you want to hear the answer to the question you're asking. If it is about the Bible, that means the substance of the answer ties us back to the Bible, not beyond it or in the realm of hypotheticals. And of course, if it is in the form of a question, then you will receive Jeopardy bonus points all that being said, though, and before we get into our topic, we want to make sure that we are prayed up. So why don't we do that? <laughs> Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be in your word among your people, and we ask we would also be in your spirit. Allow your voice to be what's heard here, as well as your heart to be shared. Thank you that we have the honor of being recipients of it as well as participants in the process. Allow him to glorify you as we seek to do the same in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's going on in the world today, and what are we going to talk about concerning it?
1: Uh, Yeah, so right now, if you're not aware of this, but there's an interesting dialogue happening in the West about the issue of what we call gender. So gender is a distinct category that was created around 60s or the 70s that distinguishes between what we call biological sex. So biological sex is what you're born with. So you're born with particular anatomical features that would distinguish you as either male or female. Now, what various social psychologists came up with, guys like John Money was the big one is that there is actually something else that we would call gender identity. Now, gender identity is not related to or linked to your biological sex, but instead is a social construct for expressing kind of more or less your temperament, how you feel about yourself. So uh, because of that, biological sex is fixed but gender is fluid. There is a way that we perceive ourselves and express ourselves to the world that's more fluid in nature, and it sometimes doesn't fit neatly into male or female. Now, this ideology is relatively new, and because of that, A lot of people don't know what to think about it, and its popularity is growing on a pretty regular basis. To the point where many young people are questioning their gender identity, and they don't really know what to think about themselves. It also is calling into question we would call our sexual identity, because if we don't really understand what our gender is, then our sexuality is actually tied to that. So, for instance, if I am a man and I'm attracted to women, I would be considered heterosexual. But if I consider myself to be female, and I'm attracted to females, then guess what, I'm actually gay. Or if I consider myself to be non-binary, meaning I'm somewhere in the middle, then, and I'm attracted to females, then I'm considered queer, or I might even be considered pansexual or something like that. So, this kind of confusion really permeates our culture. And it would be important for us to understand as Christians not only what we should think about it, but how we should approach people who think that way. So, I was reading a really informative article today written by one of the luminaries of our culture, a woman named Demi Lovato. Uh, Demi Lovato, for those of you guys who don't know, uh, she was on the Disney Channel, was a singer, songwriter, Uh, If you haven't heard of her, then you're not missing much. But she also now hosts a podcast about aliens. And she actually, she calls them star people. It's worth a watch for your entertainment value. But one of the things that kept her in the headlines is last year, she started going by a non-binary pronoun, they, them. And she asked people to call her that. She began to present herself in a more gender-neutral way. Uh, I can't remember if she actually had a surgery to take away her breasts, but regardless, she was trying to make herself more, again, gender-neutral. She shaved her head, things like that. Now, today, she is saying that she is no longer non-binary, but she's actually a woman. Now, how does she know that? So, we're going to read something from her, something that she said, and we're going to a little commentary on it. So uh, this is a quotation from Demi Lovato. She said, yeah, so they, them is um, I've actually adopted the pronouns of she, her again, again with me. Um, I don't really, I don't find that I am, I felt like she doesn't really talk in complete sentences, I suppose, but I felt like, especially last year, my energy was balanced and my masculine and feminine energy so that when I was faced with the choice of walking into a bathroom and it said women and men, I didn't feel like there was a bathroom for me because I didn't feel necessarily like a woman. I didn't feel like a man either. She added, I just felt like a human and that's why they, them, uh, meant so much to me. It's just about a feeling of being human at your core. Recently, I've been feeling more feminine, so I've adopted she, her again, the singer continued. But I think that's what's important is like nobody's perfect. Everyone messes up pronouns at some point, and especially when people are learning. It's just all about respect. What are your thoughts about that quote, Sean? Well, thus far, I guess I'd hopefully get the chance to know more about the
0: person, but it seems like, and this is where a majority of the contention on this topic tends to come from, is how this is consistent. Obviously, in the way that I portray myself, I can change the colors that I wear. I can even request that people with government assistance uh, perhaps change the way they address me by name, but I really, really, and this is the concern that a lot of people have on both sides of the aisle as well, get concerned when it's essentially equated with disrespect and even criminal actions, violence in some social circles, if you don't play along with this game. And so when we're talking about the issue of gender, obviously I, from a Christian worldview, say there are certain things I can change based on my mood or perception. That is, of course, how I dress and how I speak to people. I can be in a bad mood and talk to people very poorly, and I can even have a bad worldview or treatment towards myself, but the reality of the matter is that at the end of the day I'm still loved by God and these people are still made in the image of God therefore are due my respect because of an external authority, not an internal perception. My moods change, my desires change, but in the Christian worldview, there is something that still stays the same. What it seems that Mrs. Lovato is lacking is, or I guess is replacing with that image of God level of respect, is starting from the inside out rather than from heaven to earth. And that's what I think this issue first needs to be clarified with, is if she desires the Uh, well-being of all people to be themselves, it ultimately comes down to whether or not we are capable of being deceived or we aren't. And as we can see up until this point, she has a lot to answer for when she was referring to herself in neutral terms, masculine terms, or now once again in feminine terms. Is that based on reality? Is that based on her perceptions, is that based on her emotions, or something else? And when we tie it back to the Christian worldview, obviously we need to make sure this is how we achieve uh, achieve stability— the foundation of whether or not this is based on fact. And if fact is determined not by my will, but was around before me and what will continue to be after me, my participation in it isn't self-determined, but externally clarified. We want to test our emotions, test our perceptions. And if this is something that changes on a daily basis, that might be the first sign we were buying into the wrong philosophy.
1: Yeah, no, this is a really important point. So um, it's kind of how we understand reality and how we relate to it. So there's a existential belief system that's really permeated Western culture, and the te- the first and most important tenet of existentialism, it's a philosophical framework that really does, like I said, guide the way that we look at things in the West. Uh, the first and most important tenet of existentialism is existence precedes essence. Now, what that means is who you are actually comes after what you are, right? So you exist, but you don't really discover who you are as an individual until you relentlessly and effectively look inward and figure out who you really are. Whereas the Christian perspective, as you stated, Sean, is that there is a reality, there is an objective reality out there that we have to conform ourselves to. And we can conform ourselves to that reality with our will and with the help of others around us. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll perfectly conform ourselves to these things, but it means that we can and we should conform ourselves to these things. So there's an objective reality that we have to do. Now, this would include our gender, and this would also include our sexual preferences. Now, in the West, we have this really weird idea, and I was sharing it with Sean before the show started. We have this weird, really weird idea that is new, that our sexual preferences are f- somehow fixed that there's something in our biology, there's something in our nature that is predetermined to go in a particular way. So this is why when people talk about homosexuality in our country, they talk about it as if this is just who someone is. It's their identity. You can't change it. You can't ask someone to be something that they're not. That's the idea there. Now, this might surprise some people, but Most cultures around the world don't think that way. and
0: we're the first.
1: (laughs) Right, we are the first. We really are. Uh, The way that most cultures viewed sexuality and sexual preferences is that these things were fluid. Now, before some more progressively minded people would accuse these cultures of being bigoted or small minded, they were more liberal and progressive in their sexual preferences than the United States are. Uh, They believed that basically any sexual preference was good, including bestiality, incest, all uh, all sorts of other types of depraved sexual congress now it doesn't mean that everybody in those cultures did it it just mean that they were accepted so when i went over to afghanistan for instance the molestation of little boys was common practice it's what everybody did it's not like a small percentage of the population did it a very large percentage of the population did it to such an extent that if you were a grown man you would have had some sort of a same-sex uh, same relationship at some point in your life. Beyond that, bestiality was very widespread. Uh, the, the practice of having sex with some of the farm animals was just something that was done. Uh, it wasn't questioned, it wasn't thought of as weird, it wasn't thought of as any type of immoral behavior. It was just something that was widely practiced within their society and within their culture. Now in the West, like I said, if somebody has sex with someone of their same gender, or someone is attracted to someone of their same gender, that actually points them to a fixed nature that can't be changed. You are either gay or you are bisexual or you're pansexual or something like that. But it points to a fixed character quality. Until it doesn't. Until it doesn't. And that's what you see in Demi Lovato. So in her view, when she says, hey, we all make mistakes, what she means is not, well, I feel this way today, but I felt the I felt. Uh, I feel like a feminine today, but I was non-binary yesterday. Her idea is, no, there is a fixed nature to my gender identity. I just haven't found it yet. That's what she means when she says, we all make mistakes. There is some fixed identity that I have. I'm just trying to discover what it is. And I need a little bit of time to figure out what that is. Now, again, all these other cultures, that's not the idea. They had this idea of fluidity. So you could, as a man, be attracted to, and have sexual relations with other men. If you look in Greek society, for instance, this just was the norm. Uh, if you ever read Plato's dialogue called The Symposium, there's a lot of gay stuff happening in that book. I'm not saying that derogatorily. I'm saying that that's just what was practiced. If you read that story, you realize there's a. it's kind of a raucous dinner party where people are getting drunk and they are engaging in homosexual acts. Now, it doesn't depict these acts, but it does allude to them and describe the the people in this dialogue as being into them. Now, again, this wasn't described like when Plato wrote this dialogue, this wouldn't have been shocking to anybody. This is just the way people behaved. And so when we have this idea of a fixed nature of like, well, only certain people are attracted to members of their own gender, you have to explain these societies, these communities and cultures that have existed throughout the course of the world in which everybody engaged in same-sex relations. You have to explain how that has existed you also have to explain these cultures in which gender bending was also very normal right there's a reason why there's an entire chapter of your bible and your new testament that tells people to stop engaging in dress and behavior that would move them into the opposite gender right so if you go through first corinthians 11 paul is really strict with the corinthians of if you're a guy dressed like a guy if you're a girl dressed like a girl that was happening because in the corinthian culture That was normal. People would do that on occasion. The women would dress up like men and they would act as prostitutes and the men would dress up like women and they would act as prostitutes. That was just something that was normal. It was just something that happened. They saw their expression of gender and their expression of sexuality as being something that was fluid. It is only in the West that we have this really fixed perspective. So in other words, when people use phrases like... um, not transition therapy, but when they say things like, uh, this is conversion therapy. What they're referring to is they're referring to taking someone who has a very specific fixed identity and trying to force them into an identity that is unnatural to them. That's the idea. That we're not fluid, we are fixed, and there's nothing you can do about it. Now this is, again, it's a very new idea. The reason why, again, if you go into our country, why is it that in previous generations, same-sex attraction and same-sex behavior are much smaller in percentage? If you look through the generations, you have the traditional generation, which would be the pre-World War II generation. There's about two percent of that population that identifies as LGBTQ. In the next generation, which would be the baby boomers, you have about four or five percent of that generation that is LGBTQ. You go to Gen X. Now you're looking at 7 or 8%. You go to millennials, you're looking at 15%. If you go to Gen Zers, you're looking at, depending on the poll, anywhere between 20 and 40% of that generation. So you see it doubling. Why is it doubling? Now some people would say, well, it's because our society has become more progressive and tolerant. Well, if that's the case, you wouldn't see the generations changing. You would actually see all of the population changing so in other words as our society becomes more welcoming to this type of behavior people in previous generations would start coming out they're not you see it happening specific to the generation why is that because they believe that their gender identity and their sexual identity are fixed and they're trying to figure out what they are that's why so many of them are coming out as non-binary they're just saying i don't really know sometimes i feel like a guy sometimes i feel like a girl I'm not really sure what that means i don't want to really lock myself in a box and believe a particular thing about myself that's the idea because they don't understand that these things are fluid and that means that they can and are affected by the will So these previous generations, it's not like nobody in the traditional generation ever had same-sex attraction or thoughts. It's that they realized when they saw those thoughts within themselves, they recognized them as things that they shouldn't do. So they worked at repressing them. They worked at fighting them. Uh, Another really obvious way to see this, if this seems a little bit too high for you or a little bit too convoluted. How about incest, right? Incest is something that is very widely practiced along the globe right now, and it's something that has been practiced in human society for centuries and millennia. Now, why is it that just by instinct, when most people think of incestuous relationships, their brains don't even go there, right? You don't even think of your siblings or your near of kin as being sexual creatures at all, right? Most people, if I were to say like, hey, think about your sibling, think about your sister or your brother, are they good looking? Even asking that question is kind of gross to most people. They'd be like, "Eh, I don't want to answer that. That's kind of nasty because they just don't think about their siblings in that way. Now, why don't you think about your siblings in that way is because you were raised in a culture and society that taught you that thinking in those directions is taboo and wrong. So at a very young age, from a very young age, you fought those kinds of ideas when they came into your head but in a society that doesn't teach you how to do that, incest is very widespread. It happens all the time because they're not trained to repress these ideologies, which once again affirms what we as Christians believe, that there are desires and inclinations that occur in the human body that can be counteracted by the human will. We have a will, we have the capacity to resist these urges, and through the Holy Spirit, we understand which urges should be contested, and we also believe and know that we have the power to contest these. Now, there are certain people in our community, I don't want to be um, too disparaging against them or, or say something, there are certain people that have stronger inclinations towards those kinds of behavior, for sure. Some of these inclinations are brought on by certain mental disorders. For instance, uh, they found out that people with autism are more susceptible to uh, suggestion, Right? So, if you take an autistic community and you suggest things to them, they're much more likely to grab onto those things and to start implementing them as their identity. But So there are certain mental disorders, certain mental disabilities, or certain just bends in the flesh that make people more or less likely to fall into these categories and make it more difficult for them to fight. So I'm not saying that the fight is equal for everybody. There might be some people that no matter what culture they grow up in, same-sex attraction and same-sex sexuality would just not really apply to them very much, right? And it was like that. There were certain people in the Middle East that we met that although it was practiced widely to have sex with small boys, they didn't do it very often, right? It wasn't really something that they pursued. They were more happy just being with their family. But there are other people where they pursued it a lot because it really appealed to them. So absolutely, there is a difference in temperament. There is a difference in what we like. But no matter where you fall in that category, the truth is, is that all of these things can be fought So real quick, uh, do you have anything else to say? And I wanted to say something about repression. Well, just to tie it back to the
0: Bible as our framework, understand that the combat in ideals is ultimately who has the right to determine who you are. In a culture that values freedom and individual rights, that is taken to the point where autonomy is the highest virtue. And you see people saying that if I feel, therefore I am. So as a slave to their emotions, they determine themselves free. Whereas from the Christian worldview, we present ourselves slaves to Christ and free from sin. We're free from the enslavement to our emotions, to our culture, to the suggestion of people with an agenda. And we ultimately just fall back on that old music lyric, you gotta serve somebody. And this is ultimately where the line is drawn. Do we tell God, and noting There are people who don't believe in God, and thus the issue of that as well, having no authority apart from yourself, and that being popularized as well, whether or not that is a sound authority, that I can truly know myself, to the point where I can not only identify myself, but do so properly, either through my behavior, through my thought patterns, through my search history, or whatever. For the Christian, we understand and need to recognize for ourselves not only what we trust from God, but why we trust him as opposed to ourselves. And it's a daily battle because every time we sin, we're trusting ourselves and our inclinations as opposed to God's purposes for our lives. But that fight is something that doesn't exist in the world and shouldn't surprise us. If on the other hand we as Christians are going to be salt and light, we need to be able to explain those who ask a reason for the hope that is within us these sort of issues. Why is it that you're content as a man when you can honestly acknowledge knowledge, beauty in the same gender. Well, it's because I don't determine sexuality or my identity on the basis of hormones. I base it on whether or not I was made by somebody and if they had that in mind. And then we can get into hypotheticals from there and ultimately tie it back to reality. But this is the point. I trust God to know more than I do. Your move. So going back to repression then.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So real quick, a quote from C.S. Lewis that I think really illustrates your point that you're making in The Abolition of Man, which is a fantastic book, by the way, for our time. Uh, I highly recommend everyone to read that book. But anyway, in The Abolition of Man, he says, in ancient times, the problem for sorcerers was the same problem as modern science, and that is how to subjugate nature to our will the problem for the ancient philosopher was how to subject my will to nature so in other words what was happening through the sorcerers that you see in the bible and that existed in the ancient days and exists to this day in certain parts of the world is there is a way that nature is and there is a way that my will is if my will is in conflict with nature, that's because nature is wrong and I have the right to subjugate nature to my willpower. The problem with sorcerers is that they didn't really have the ability or power to really do that in an efficacious way. Modern science can, right? Modern science really can change the nature of somebody utilizing different hormonal pills and utilizing different surgeries. Now, does it actually change them? No, but it makes it look like it, right? It could actually make it appear in a way that human nature has never been able to do before. So, what C.S. Lewis is saying is he's saying that our modern culture does look at nature as being the problem and is constantly trying to subjugate nature to our will. Whereas, what we should be doing, what ancient wisdom teaches us, is nature has a particular order. That order is created by God and maintained by God. And my part in the natural order is to subjugate my will to the natural order. So, if God has created me as a male, and I have attraction to other males. I need to be able to subjugate my will to God's natural order, which would be to resist those urges. If I have a desire to be a female, I have to subjugate my will to the natural order. God has created me male, and therefore, in order to honor Him and glorify Him, I have to live into that. So, doesn't that lead to repression? That's the normal uh, conflict that people get into in modern day culture. Now, this type of language was created by a guy named Sigmund Freud. You may have heard of him. So Freud had this really interesting idea that everything that's wrong with the world is created by sexual repression. And he was real big fan of the Oedipus con- Oedipal complex, which I'm not going to get into right now because it's pretty gross. But essentially, he believed that what's wrong with us is that we subject or we repress Various sexual desires, and that's what makes us violent, and that's what makes us lustful, and that's what makes us unhappy, and everything like that. And his whole idea was the more I get in contact with your unconscious and I figure out what your repressed desires are, I could help you live into those, and you'll be free, and then all of your issues will go away. That was the idea. And he believed that most of them were about sex, by the way, uh, spoiler alert. Yeah, but it's it, like it, the uh, Bill Cosby routine, where he says, oh, why do people go after the cocaine? He says, well, it
0: amplifies your personality. He says, yes, but what if you're a jerk? And <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> if you embrace your base nature, the superego, mm-hmm. then oh, it's kind of ugly. Yeah. But if on the other hand, you assume that the true superego of man, the Ubermachen, as yeah. Feuerbach said, well, no, that didn't work very well either. That's what inspired the Third Reich. So back to the drawing board.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this, this idea, this, this theory, not only is it false, but it is actually in conflict with Scripture. So what the Bible says is, let me give you uh, a couple. Uh, number one is in Proverbs 14, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end therein lies destruction. Or how about Jeremiah chapter 17, uh, verse 9, where he says, "...the heart is deceitfully awakened above all things who can know it." So the Bible actually paints this very different picture. The Bible paints this picture that you have many desires that go contrary to nature and are actually destructive. And the purpose of society, the purpose of culture, family, and institutions is to encourage and equip young people to be able to, again, subjugate those more base desires Against what they should want, against what they should will to do, which is what's best for them. Now, a culture that doesn't train kids how to do this is a culture that's raising kids to be incredibly confused. And you have to understand everything, the the pull and the tide of our culture is so strong in this direction. It believes it so fervently. It's so inundating, every aspect of our culture, that as parents, you can't really sit on the sideline of this issue anymore. You have to be very, very careful with your children about what you're instructing them in and how they see the world and what they're imbibing and what it's teaching them about their nature and about reality. But the main thing is, is that this idea of repression, is there such a thing? Well, there is. Now, what repression is, and this is actually something that has been studied and it's genuinely something that's destructive to the individual what genuine repression is is it's taking a thought and denying that it even exists right so let's say there's a husband that's really upset with his wife but he doesn't want to say that because he's been raised to believe that nice husbands never think anything negative about their wives well the more he represses that thought the more it will manifest itself in the way he treats her Right? So he might not tell her he doesn't like her, but he's going to treat her pretty poorly. Right, That's a result of repression. Now, what we're talking about through the Bible, which is spiritual warfare—some people call it spiritual warfare, but whatever you want to call it—it's not denying the thought exists. It's in. It's actually acknowledging and confessing that the thought exists and then seeking to fight against it. This is what we see in Second Corinthians 10, verse 3. So although we walk according to the flesh— We do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons that we have are mighty in God for tearing down strongholds. And this is the important part, taking every thought captive that goes against the glory of God. So the idea there is that we have thoughts that go contrary to what we ought to do, but we don't deny that the thought exists. We actually accept that it exists. We actually confess it. We say, Lord, this is something that I'm thinking about. This is something that I want to do. But Lord, I know that's not something that I should do. Help me to fight this in uh, in respect to you, help me to honor you, not just with my actions, but with my thought life and with my emotions. That's something that the Christian ought to do. Most Christians, the reason why Christians actually do suffer from repression is because they're unwilling to acknowledge the unfortunate and destructive thoughts that do enter into their brains. There's a, there are a lot of Christians that have same-sex attraction, but they feel terrified to admit it, and those repressed thoughts end up manifesting itself in some really unsavory ways. It'd be much better for you to acknowledge and admit what's actually going on in your heart and therefore fight it among the community of other believers than it would be for you to repress them and therefore express them in some really bad ways. So let us know if that's all comprehensive. And with that said, we'll get out to your questions.
0: Uh, Speaking of nature, nurture, or disorder, uh, essay is a question regarding anxiety, specifically clinical anxiety or just a proclivity. What would be the word? Proclivity. Proclivity towards it. Uh, Is it a sin, is it a disorder, or both? And I would say, as the question lies, none of the above. It matters as to whether or not it's affecting your behavior and your perception that it becomes a deviation from God's nature, the definition of sin. Usually when dealing with anxiety, people will turn to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, don't be anxious for anything. But let's read the whole passage and note not only the topic, that Jesus was discussing. Spoiler alert, it was himself. And, of course, how we follow through on these things properly. So, obviously, after an interesting conversation about prayer and making sure that your perception, or rather, your view of God's perception of you is more important than man's perception of you, he goes on to set up a list of priorities. In verse 25 of Matthew 6, he says, Therefore, in light of all these things, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And he goes on to give several other examples. But notice how Jesus is saying, instead of worrying about this or that, understand in light of What God knows that you need, and this is the whole point, when he says in verse 30, after the illustration of Solomon's clothing being inferior to the way God clothes the lilies of the field, he says, So God clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown in the oven. How will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So, notice the first thing that he corrects in this conversation isn't the anxiety. He corrects the perception of the anxiety. But the first correction, as far as conduct is concerned, is the thought pattern towards God. If your anxiety leads you to a false understanding of God's nature and your relationship with Him, that's the line. Because we as human beings have fear and a pro. I won't even try with the word anymore. The uh, tendency towards fear or seeing things through an anxiety-ridden context doesn't actually determine your actions. There are people who are very scared, but as uh, John Wayne, I believe, once said, the definition of courage is being scared but saddling up anyway. That's the whole point, is actions is what determines whether or not anxiety rules you. When Jesus corrects anxiety, he refocuses our perception towards God and our reasons to trust, he will provide for our needs. Therefore, in verse 31, he says, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Once again, note his correction is of perception, not of the fact they're anxious in the begin in the first place. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There's the action and all these things—food, clothing, etc.—will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Notice the perception is the issue. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So if Jesus is setting up this characteristic of anxiety and it being sinful, then where do we essentially— get a uh, support for this passage when it notes in other passages that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, say, for instance, in the book of Proverbs chapter 1. But the point being made is that, essay, if we're talking about fear, this general attitude of anxiety that either we may be clinically disposed to or that our world is all too eager to cultivate, it ultimately comes down to, and the difference between sin and the attitude of just basically managing your own thoughts isn't whether or not you have the thoughts like we were talking about before, it's what you do with them, it's how you act on them, how they affect your perception of others, yourself, and ultimately, and most importantly, God. That is where the line is drawn between sin, much like with lust, much like with greed, much like with anything else. It's not wrong to desire things. It's not a sin to recognize a desire for what it is. It's not even necessarily a sin to feel tempted. But if I act on that temptation, if I acknowledge the evil thought and then follow through as if it were a series of instructions, that's not only temptation, that's not only an evil thought, but then it becomes sin because it's fully conceived, as James said. So note the difference essay. It's not wrong to think certain ways. It's wrong when, and by wrong I mean not God's nature, when it determines your actions and your view of him. That's where the lines need to be drawn and where truth ultimately needs to be the answer. Yes, I am anxious about driving to work today because I could get in a car accident, but I drive anyway because A, I'll be a responsible driver, B, if someone else isn't a responsible driver, there's not much I can do about that anyway, and C, If I, should the worst happen, get in that wreck, I trust God will take care of me, both in a mortal state and in a financial state. So just note all those things in regards to perception and to attitude. Anything more to correct or note?
1: Yeah, nothing to correct. I just wanted to push it a little bit. And kind of like what we were talking about last week when it came to uh, clinical depression, what we said is that it's not as though me and Sean... Um, and, and Sean did mention this in his answer, it's not as though me and Sean uh, are completely disabused to the idea that there are a such thing as disabilities and disorders within the brain and that these can affect your mood. There are a very small percentage of people that would have uh, free-floating anxiety, certain uh, mental disorders that would make someone more predisposed to being anxious at too small of a impulse and to go overboard with that. There are certain traumatic injuries that you can experience within the mind that can affect that and things to that nature. But there's Uh, it's actually a very, very small percentage of the population, a tiny, tiny percentage of the population. There's a reason why anxiety is such a big deal. There are actually several reasons why anxiety is such a big deal within our culture. So I'll run them down really quickly, and I'll explain how you can actually address them and figure out, even if you have uh, some sort of a clinical disorder, how you can better combat it. Because as Sean uh, said in a very eloquent and well way, that there is a propensity towards it. But just having anxiety is actually not a sin. It's being run by it. That's a sin. And actually, the more courageous you are, that's a virtue. So if you have anxiety, anxiety disorder, and you're able to overcome it through courage, that's an actual big boon to your spiritual life. And in fact, Jesus was so anxious before going to the cross, he sweat blood. I've never been that stressed out before. I've been shot at. I've never been so stressed out that I started sweating blood. So if being anxious is a sin, Jesus committed a pretty cardinal sin there. But obviously what, why we look at Jesus and say that his actions in the garden were not cowardice but courageousness is because he felt that level of fear, but did the right thing anyway. He saddled up anyway, as John Wayne would put it. Uh, So why is our culture going in this direction in such a, a large order? There are a couple big reasons. The first one's actually in the book of Ecclesiastes. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon makes the observation that it seems like wealthy people are more stressed out than poor people. And he's trying to figure out why, and it's a really interesting section of the book that I've always found very fascinating. But here's the big reason. When somebody is more in a life or death situation, like, for instance, when I was in Afghanistan, that was actually some of the less stressed I've ever been in my entire life. Uh, The reason why is because when you come, if, if you confront reality, nature the way it really is, you will realize very quickly just how out of control you are and how fragile your life really is right as moses says in psalm 90 our lives are but dust right you know our frames that we are but dust teach us to number our days and in the innermost parts may us learn may we learn wisdom we are very fragile human beings we are mortal we will die when you are in a position in your life where you have to confront that reality on a regular basis and you recognize just how fragile your existence is It encourages you to build up boldness and courage. That's what it does. And it helps you also let go and to trust in God and trust in your circumstances, recognizing that you're not in control. When you're wealthy, it can very easily produce in your brain an idea of false control. It produces a false sense of control within your life where you really believe that you are in control of things and that nothing bad will ever happen to you. This is why anxiety is much worse in the Western world than it is in the more third world parts of the Earth. You would think that that would be flipped. You would think that the people that have to deal with lion attacks on a daily basis would be way more stressed out than we are in the West. The opposite is true. Why? Because they wake up every day knowing, I might be eaten by a lion today. Most people in America wake up thinking, I can totally control my life and I will never die, right? They really believe that. And they believe it so strongly that when small things happen in their life that might lead to their death, they freak out and they overreact to the point where they have to cling to various things like safety blankets, right? I'm not going to mention any specifics right now. But at any rate, this is what happens in a westernized civilized culture where people really believe they can control things when you're in a more impoverished world you don't believe that way you accept things that you cannot change the next thing that's really important is that most people don't actually have to face fears in western society so in more impoverished societies you have to face your fears you don't have a choice right if you don't face your fears you're just going to die alone in a hut somewhere and even then you're probably going to get bit by something or eaten by something if you just hide alone in your hut in the western world you really can hide from your fears And your parents really can insulate you from things that are scary. And that will actually encourage people to be, again, more passive towards their fears and less courageous. The final reason I'll give, because we're running low on time, is that anxiety is created by an inability to connect with the present moment. So people who have anxiety complexes, you could tell they're always somewhere else. They're always anxious about the future or they're always worried about the past, but they can never really be present mentally. What technology has enabled us to do is to never be present right? You're always somewhere else. You're talking to someone, but you're thinking about your finances. You can pull up your Instagram feed. You can pull up your Facebook. You're always somewhere else mentally. That inability to connect with the present moment and the inability to connect with present relationships actually disables people from being able to control their anxiety very well, right? So the more present you can become, the better you'll be. So what's our solution? Well, the first one that I'll give, which is very obvious, is learn how to be more present, turn off the technology, find some time to just be present with people, it will help your anxiety. The second one is take care of your body. A lot of people treat their bodies very terribly. They don't exercise, they don't get enough sunlight, they don't eat very well, right? That can actually affect your anxiety quite a bit. Uh, The next one, and there's many more I can give, but the next one and the final one that I'll give for now is just your ability to confront your fears. If there are things that you are worried about in a general way in your life, teach yourself courage by confronting those fears, right? This is why certain people, you know, if you have a fear, I'll give you just a, a, a very common one. If you have a fear of heights, confront that fear, do something with your, with heights, right? It doesn't mean you Not got a bunch foolish, of foolish, right? Not but. foolish, but you know, do something with heights that you have to confront that fear, you know, go on a plane ride, go climb to a top of a skyscraper, look over the edge, right? Learn, Find, to repel. Re- learn to repel, right? Do something that's safe and controlled, but will make you confront your fears and therefore teach you to develop courage, right? So many people walk around anxiety because they've never confronted their fears. They always run from them. They've never had the opportunity to execute courage, to act in light of fear. Absolutely. So that might sound weird to you, but honestly, find some sort of a fear that Sean said you can, you can confront in a controlled environment and do it, make it a priority in your life. And it will, again, it will inculcate courage and it will make you a more bold individual. All right. Um, follow through on that as well. Um, little uh,
0: comments from the elder, he's not able to join us, but he is commenting, so we'll share those words as well. Um, his go-to passages on this are obviously Isaiah 26.3, you will keep in perfect peace, the one whose uh, mind is fixed on, on you, you because I mean, he trusts in you. Trust you. And then the entirety of Psalm 91, if I can remember a verse, I won't remember a chapter, so I'll I won't try, but note those passages as well if you need some truth statements to reflect on, and he made the observation, if I'm anxious, that's not a sin, but can be the Lord's way of showing us we're trying to manage life on our own strength. That was his point in the Sermon on the Mount. So let us know, everybody, if that is comprehensive and clear, and if not, we'll talk about it more tomorrow. Uh, question from Yari, several questions actually, uh, regarding the Holy Spirit speaking in certain ways he attended a prophetic conference and a man rather interestingly said that the that god told him elbows and knees and then the holy spirit spoke from that and said i just feel the lord wants elbows and knees and applied this then to physical healing and spiritual healing god wants you to hug again i don't know what's that guy was smoking but we'll uh, we'll address it anyway I when people say, is. oh, so you don't believe, obviously I'm not in favor of this man. was saying I think he was speaking presumptuously, if not just being an outright false prophet. I've put my cards on the table. But uh, when people hear these sort of utterances, they'd say, well, the Holy Spirit's allowed to speak. Uh, for example, if we're going to go to the Acts of the Apostles, obviously when you can go to Acts chapter uh, 20, or actually let's uh, go to chapter 13, I'll, I'll get it right eventually. <laughs> uh, the uh, incident where the Holy Spirit spoke and told them, separate for me Paul and Barnabas for their ministry to the Gentiles. Um, this was a very immediate, a very personal, and a very direct to that historical moment utterance of the Holy Spirit in, uh Acts 13, excuse me, in verse 2. But the situations then broadened to mean that if the Holy Spirit is claimed to be speaking here, Since it's possible the Holy Spirit could speak here, therefore he is speaking here. That does not follow. Maybe we'll talk about that in rhetoric someday soon. (laughs) But if we're going to be consistent with this biblically, the first place you need to go whenever anyone says anything about what God said or did or may have said or did, first start with Scripture. And Yari, I know this may be difficult for a lot of people, just knowing that's it's a long book. Where in Scripture? Well, First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19, or actually uh, uh, 17 through 21 is a good place, but specifically 19 through 21, are the keys. Don't despise prophecies. I don't, you know, turn up my nose whenever someone claims to be speaking for God. That's what a prophecy is. But I test all things, and I hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. So how do I tell the difference? Well, it lays it out pretty eloquently for us. It's talking about, in light of what God has said, is he going to conflict with what he has perhaps said, or hasn't said? And that's the point. Deuteronomy 18 would be a good place to start, but when we're just hearing someone ramble incoherently, a thought comes to their mind and then they attribute it to God. While that may be very spiritually minded, it's not spiritually informed. We need both, not one over the other, or especially in this case one at the expense of the other. Someone says, elbows and knees, and then applies that to be God's desire for people to be healed in this way okay well where has that appeared before and notice we're going to be consistent with this in the book of acts there was an interesting call by the holy spirit for paul to go to jerusalem and he knew that And they were told this, the one who goes is going to be bound in this way. They understood that this was going to be a one-way journey, but Paul said, why do you break my heart in this way? I'm prepared to go to Jerusalem even to die for our Lord. Why did he come to that conclusion? Why did they rightly discern this prophecy was from God, and why did Paul go through it anyway? Because he tested that prophecy in light of what else Jesus had said. For example, in Acts 23, and verse 11, he told him be of good cheer, Paul, for you have testified for me in Jerusalem, You almost, uh, for you must also bear witness at Rome. God laid out for Paul very directly in his word that this was the purpose by which you're going to be going this direction. And any revelation I give to you on top of that is going to line up with what you've already been told. And here's a good principle. If you're told something that you're not sure about, fall back on what you are sure about. If what someone says, This is probably the most direct example, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. uh, There was an interesting observation. No one calls Jesus accursed by the Holy Spirit, and no one calls Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If God's speaking, it's not going to conflict with his nature, and it's not going to contradict it either. What is in line with his nature? Well, maybe what he's already said. And if we can know and test that that is what he said, then I would love to listen to what else you have to say verifying that. But if someone comes along and just starts naming body parts, you know, may sound good set to a musical tone—head, shoulders, knees, and toes—but if someone claims that's accredited to God, well, not only do I have more questions—maybe, where are you getting that scripturally? Let's test this, and you can see just how fast they go from the spiritual to the flesh in a blink of an eye. Or, you can put it where it rightfully belongs in saying, I'm going to wait for further information, not the garbage, but maybe I need more information than just naming body parts. God says, duck, is he describing an animal? Is he describing a, oh, there's a, (laughs) that might be a more immediate example, but you see the point. So if we're talking to people or being told by people, this is a word from the Lord for you, do not, even if you hear it here, Take that at face value. Make sure that it's examined according to God's word. And if they can't back it up, then you can, I guess, uh, throw it down, as you will. Anything more to clarify? No. All right. Ugly, ugly people. But anyway, he'll answer to God. We won't. Uh, Claudia wants to know, are the thoughts and words of Job's friends good to rely on, she only asked this because at the end of Job, God has Job pray for his friends because his wrath was kindled against them in verse 7 of chapter 42. So, obviously, there was uh, interesting conversations over the span of the book, of 40 chapters full, of their observations about God, and some of which were accurate, some of which were not, in as far as they were applied to Job. But if uh, someone gets the facts right but in the wrong way. Does that mean they didn't get the facts right? And maybe we can give an example.
1: Uh, Yeah, no. So in Job chapter 42, verse 7, this is the entire verse that we're talking about. So it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So as Sean said, there were a lot of observations that Job's friends made that were accurate. They talk about God's sovereignty. They talk about God's power they talk about God being important, they talk about God's ethics, and they actually get the ethics correct. The main flaw that they had in their logic was that because God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-just, if you follow his ethics correctly, God will bless you as a result. So therefore, they inferred that Job's suffering was self-inflicted, that Job, you must have been sinning in some way, and that is why God is judging you in this way. That is the main thing that they got wrong. So when you're reading the uh, the sayings of Job's friends, just keep that in mind, that there are some accurate things that they say, but there are also some very inaccurate things that they say. And so when you're trying to weigh which ones are accurate, which ones aren't, you're going to have to compare it to the other parts of Scripture, A. But B, also compare it to what job contradicts them with because god seems to be saying here that when job was contradicting his friends he was right he was correct now there was another way that they misappropriated god's word And Job contradicts them on this as well. There is one section where Job essentially says that he wishes he were dead. And uh, beyond that, he wishes he was never born. And uh, kind of pulled a a George Bailey a little bit there. And his friends contradict him. They're like, Job, that is so wrong. You should never say that. You should never impute wickedness to God. Now, are they saying something true? Yeah. But Job contradicts, contradicts them in this way. He says, are you going to contradict the words of a desperate man? For do you not know that my words are but wind? Now, what he's saying is, hey, you're right. I know you're right. I know I shouldn't be wishing that I was never born. However, I'm hurting right now. I don't know if you noticed, but my life is not going too great. And maybe what I need is not a theological answer, but maybe I need comfort and presence from my friends. Right. So uh, those are the errors that his friends made, and that's why God is angry at them, he's upset with them. Um, anything you'd like to add to that? Or? Yeah, truth is truth if it comes from a bad
0: teacher. Falsehood is falsehood even if it comes from a good source. Where Job's friends got things right, they were right. But how they applied it very uh, inappropriately was the issue. That's why God wasn't a fan of their comments. Not because <laughs> they were false, but because yeah. they weren't helping. Right. That all being said, uh, speaking of times where we'll have to think through what we're saying, uh question from Nina wants to know, do those in heaven know what is happening in hell? Will a mother, for example, in heaven remember her son who completely rejected Christ? What we know, and this is with First Corinthians 13 in mind, is that we'll know Jesus. We'll be with Jesus. We'll see everything in light of him, and that includes final judgment. Whether or not that's obviously going to be grieved about or not, we've answered those questions in a different time. If you want to be more specific in that, that's how we address it. But just note, that's going to make a eternity's worth of difference, seeing everything in light of Jesus. If we're asking for specifics in Scripture of someone who is aware of someone in a state separated from God forever, the only thing we're given close enough to that is Lazarus and Abraham and the rich man in torment, not in ultimate hell, but separated and awaiting judgment. Uh, he was aware of the rich man, but he was more interested in focusing on what Abraham was also interested in focusing on, the coming of the Messiah. So when it even it when it comes to coping with this grief in this life and peter you can provide comment on this as well it's seeing these things in light of that one ongoing fact will not the judge of all the earth do what is right he did right by him by letting him reject you but it doesn't mean it's not going to hurt it doesn't mean that there won't be grief but we do know as we read in revelation 21 he will wipe away those tears rightfully though they may be he'll be grieving with you anything to clarify Huh? All right, well, let me know if that helps you out, Nina. I don't want to be a Job's counselor and say, you'll, you'll just get over it. No, yeah. I won't say that. All I'll know is that you'll be with Jesus. That I can say for certain. A uh, question from Isaiah, uh, in light of what we talked about yesterday, non-essentials and essentials, will those be resolved in heaven? The non-essentials.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think we have a lot of confirmation that will be in that when you look at heaven, it's very unified, right? There's no divisiveness in heaven or angry shouting or things like that. Now, the main reason why non-essentials are going to be solved is because we're gonna have knowledge of God, right? There's not gonna be any argumentation because everyone's going to be confronted with absolute truth in in the Messiah. So that's gonna be really beautiful and cool. So yes, non-essentials will be resolved in heaven. All right, and to finish up the broadcast, uh, another question
0: from Isaiah who wants to know, uh, if the Lord tarries, will things get better and then bad again like Nineveh? Lord knows the future those of you who don't know what he's alluding to, obviously you're probably familiar with the account of Jonah, where the capital of the Assyrian empire a very wicked nation, by the way—turned uh, from their sin, but then the generation after that didn't learn from their ancestors and got even worse, and the entire book of Nahum is just telling them, hey, just because your parents got it right doesn't mean you get it right by association. You're going to experience judgment. If the world continues the way that it is, it's not going to get better and then worse again. It's going to keep getting worse, and we have passed in First Timothy, and among other places, that would verify that. But the point being made is this you focus on the world, you focus on yourself, you're going to be depressed, focus on your relationship with God, because while the way of the world is heading towards death, the way of the righteous proverb says is like the rising sun. We can have hope in that as well. Anything to clarify the few seconds we have left? Yeah,
1: no, no, that's good.
0: All right, well, thank you all for your questions. A few here and there that may or may not be set on topic, but we appreciate your guys' participation and prayers as well. Hopefully this was helpful because if there's anything constant in this world, I guess it's a... a, uh Anxiety would be a good place to start. Real quick, um, just got one from Keeping It Real. Does the Holy Spirit audibly talk at all? He can, but uh, we have something better that we can examine in light of those things. He doesn't have to. God bless you all, and we'll see you all again tomorrow. Till then, this has been A Reason for Hope. May the word of the Lord be in you, and you in the word of the Lord. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope.